0: Win then only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through our prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is in my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now and as always, Christ will be honored in my body and also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw and had,
1: and now hear that I still have. That was the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. So glad uh, to see you this morning. My name is Gray. If we haven't met yet... I'm... Senior pastor here, and it's a delight to have you this morning at church with us. We are uh, going through the book of Philippians uh, passage by passage together. Last week we bit off more than we could chew, really. Um, Too much going on there in that to live is Christ, to die is gain passage. So I wanted to include a few verses that we kind of had to skip over, not really skip over, but Delay uh, for this morning's passage. And then we'll just go three or four verses to the end of the first chapter of Philippians and really look at Paul's circumstances that he finds himself in a place of suffering and conflict for the sake of the gospel. And that's something that I think we need to talk about for our situation as well. Let's uh, go to the Lord and ask for his help in prayer this morning. Our great God and Father, You are near to us. When we draw near to you, your word says you draw near to us. You have not left or forsaken us. You have always been and will always be. And I pray that as we come in and out of awareness of that, um, Lord, that, that we would know that you are the God who is and that your truth is eternal and I pray, Father, that this morning as we come to your word and we look at some things, some hard things even, about what it means to follow you, to be in conflict at times with the world, that you would give us the grace to endure suffering and hardship, that you would be our strength. And I pray that you would honor, be honored by the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, some of you are old enough to remember the, the, uh, the late 80s and early 90s, some of you in the room. Uh, whether you were alive during that time or not, or, or coming of age like I was, you probably uh, were not aware that there was something going on uh, called the Jesus Seminar. Uh, So in the late 80s and early 90s, this seminar met, and their mission, it was a group of scholars that were trying to find the authentic Jesus of the gospel. So we can't believe that the words that are given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we can't accept uh, just the words as they are written. We have to find the authentic words within the scriptures and so they met to try to determine this. And famously, there's a story of, of them um, voting on what the words of Christ actually were using a colored bead system. So you got four different colors of beads, red, pink, gray, and black. And the, these scholars would vote on, on whether they thought that the words that they found in the Gospels were the essential authentic words of Christ. Red meant, yes, that's definitely Jesus. Pink meant, probably is Jesus. It sounds like Jesus, but we're not sure. Gray meant, probably not, but, uh, but maybe. And black meant, definitely not. This is definitely not Jesus's words. Now, that's a dated story that happened a while ago, but it's had a lasting impact. You will still walk by, um, if you see a newsstand at the grocery store or at, you know, wherever you shop for groceries, you'll see Newsweek magazine often has these stories about who is the real Jesus and what can we know historically. And much of that scholarship goes back to that moment when they were voting Uh, on this system. You can still find Bibles that are color-coded. The New Testament is color-coded, not with the words of Jesus in red and the rest in black, but the the authentic words of Jesus in red, and then gray and black and pink. This scholarship, so to speak, has been roundly mocked um, by those inside the church, Christians, and also by non-Christians who see this as complete bunk, right? The way that they approach this is not the way that you do scholarship. You don't vote in scholarship, right? We don't just decide by voting. That's not how the truth is discovered. But they also are, are, um, are looking at the presuppositions that, the, that this group brought To the scriptural text. What do I mean by presupposition? A presupposition is just something that you believe in advance of doing something. You believe something before you start. And we all have presuppositions, but what has been roundly mocked and shown to be what it's worth is the presuppositions that the Jesus Seminar brought in with them to look at the scriptures. What are some of these presuppositions? Well, number one was the presupposition of scientific naturalism. Meaning, they ruled out anything in the scriptures before they even started. If it had to do with miracles, if it had to do with angels and demons, if it had to do with Jesus' signs and wonders, anything that couldn't be explained with natural uh, scientific phenomena, they ruled out. That was their first presupposition. Another presupposition was that anything that Jesus said that sounded like Judaism what Jesus was born into, must be accounted for by the Jewish elders or leaders after Jesus came, making him sound more Jewish. And anything that he said that the later the Christian church advocated for or said this is what Jesus said, well, that has to be struck as well because um, that's just a later addition that uh, we can't trust. And so you have this picture of Jesus, this is the payoff of this, that emerges... What does Jesus look like? What does the Christian faith look like when you take out <laughs> the presupposition that God can do work in the world that's not related to scientific natural phenomena, and that you take out Jesus who was born a Jew, you take out any teachings of the church that he established, you have this picture of Jesus that's left who had nothing to do with what came before and nothing to do with what came after. In fact, what he looks like is this. This teacher who said pithy parables and who challenged authority. A Jesus who looked exactly like the Jesus Seminar scholars. <laughs> See, they, they set out to find the authentic Christ and what they found in the end was an image of themselves. Now that's an easy thing to you know, condemn and see as kind of ridiculous, but I think it goes to a human tendency that all of us have, which is I want the, the truth, I want the scriptures, I want what I believe to, to fit evenly into my preconceived beliefs, and perhaps with the beliefs of my culture around me. See, that's really what they were doing. They were trying to fit the truth into what they had already determined to be true, then they found Christ to be without conflict. And sometimes we have the same goal. We don't really have the physical beads, but we might vote a little bit in our heads. Red, yes, that's the Jesus I like. That's the truth I like from the Scriptures. Pink, that's probably true but I kind of hope it's not to. I'm a little little embarrassed about it. Gray, it might be true, but I really kind of hope not. And black, there's no way that the God that I follow would do that, say that, challenge that. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves doing the same thing. We've made the truth in our own image. We have fit God into our preconceived idea where there is no conflict between what we already believe or what our culture believes and what is true. That is so foreign, so very different from what Paul says in prison, in Rome, as he writes this letter, he's saying this is what you should expect. The very same conflict that I'm experiencing, the very same suffering that I'm experiencing, you should expect to feel and to suffer. Here's what I want us to see this morning. A commitment to gospel allegiance, we're gonna define that in a minute, will require courage in the face of conflict and suffering. This will happen. There will be conflict and suffering between the things that we experience, what we already believe, what others around us believe, and the gospel of Christ. Now, why do I say gospel allegiance? Look at verse 27 with me. He says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, we got to break that down a little bit. The, the word, therefore, your manner of life is just one word. Really, it's it's the word politeo where we get our word politics. This is allegiance, this is citizenship. So he's saying only let your allegiance or your political commitment, your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Elsewhere, Paul uses the same word to talk about the allegiance of soldiers. This is a commitment, an allegiance, a conduct. But not just kind of a way of life, like the ESV says here. It's more like a commitment above all else. Like a soldier has to have an allegiance to the army. And he says, This citizenship, this allegiance is to the gospel. Even when other cultures or other things might clash with it, this is your allegiance to be worthy of the gospel. Now, this is a particular point to the Philippian church that probably would have made them think a little bit more deeply because they were in a privileged position, a citizenship with Rome. There's a long story um, of, of all the you know, the the power struggles in Rome and different uh, leaders and different uh, leaders at different times. And through this conflict of different military generals fighting with each other, at the end of the day, the colony of Philippi was left with a bunch of soldiers um, that were Roman soldiers, and the soldiers stayed. They were in the occupation so long in Philippi that basically it just became an outpost for Rome. And later... Philippi became a Roman colony. So they had official status. Unlike many of the colonies and many of the occupations that Rome uh, had that were just under their control, Philippi became part of Rome. They had a citizenship, in other words. Maybe why Paul is going to spend so much time in this book talking about their allegiance and citizenship. Later in chapter 3, he's going to say, your citizenship is in heaven. What Paul is saying here is this, I, because of this commitment, because of this allegiance, had to have courage in the face of living or dying. That's why I included those verses from last week. He says in verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Then skip down with me to verse 29 where he says this, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And now here that I still have. Belief and conflict. They coexist together, always. Paul's words are meaningless if the point of Christianity is to have a God to ratify our own preconceptions of what is true or our cultural presuppositions of what is true. Paul has some presuppositions. He says, You will need courage, you will be hated. And here, he is just echoing what Jesus said in John 15. If the world hates you, just know they hated me before they hated you. And it's because of me that they hate you. There is this conflict. And I don't relish talking about this. It's not something that we're up here every week beating a drum. like It's us against the world. That's not the, the vibe that we go for. But at the same time, when we see it in Scriptures, we have to see that there is a conflict, an essential conflict between an allegiance to the world and an allegiance to Christ. And we need to have courage. Briefly, let's talk about two things. What destroys courage and then what gives courage? What destroys courage? Well, Paul's going to say he wants to see some things, some pictures of their allegiance. These are his desires. In verse 27, He says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. All right. The first thing that he wants them to do is to stand firm. The thing that destroys courage, in other words, what he says is fleeing or drifting away from the truth. All of these pictures that he gives us are military or athletic pictures. Um, pictures of conflict, pictures of struggle. Here he says, stand firm. And the picture is of the soldier, right? Who isn't quaking before the enemy, isn't running away or sliding back, but is standing in their position. And this is not a minor theme for the Apostle Paul. Romans 14.4, the Lord is able to make you stand firm. Galatians 5.1, stand firm. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2:15 Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that I taught you. Stand firm. Paul's words again would be meaningless if there wasn't a temptation to drift or to flee from the truth. What does he mean by standing firm? He's talking about a commitment here to the truth that isn't bent or shaped by circumstances, by people, or by culture. And he wants to see some resiliency in the people of God. I love this challenge here that he gives. He says, look, whether I come to you or I'm absent, I want to hear that you're standing firm. That challenge is this. I want you to be able to do this on your own. I don't want you to stand firm just because I happen to be there. I want you to stand firm no matter what. It's a challenging question for for those of us to consider how much of our resiliency in the faith is dependent on another person or institution or situation in our lives. A pastor who's mentored you goes astray, and now you're questioning your faith. A church that does the wrong thing, it happens all the time, but suddenly now your faith is adrift because of a church. The challenge here is I don't... There's lots of things that could go on. I could be with you or I could be gone, but I want you to stand firm in one spirit, committed to the truth. The second thing that destroys courage is infighting. He says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. He says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It says another thing that will destroy your courage is when you spend your energy fighting each other rather than standing side by side. Harmony is so important. Have the mind. Have the spirit of oneness. This genuine harmony. That side by side language that he uses, and I want you to struggle side by side. It's the picture of the gladiator in the Roman arena, where the formation is formed in a circle to protect each other from an opponent or a beast. It assumes that there's some kind of attack going on. It's used in that context. It's also used in the context of wrestling. The word you should probably see where we get our English word is athleo, like athletics. And here particularly it would be wrestling. Not wrestling each other, but rather wrestling side by side. It's team wrestling. And he says, this is important. That we stay side by side with one another. That we're, now we're not fighting one another. There's, there are real enemies. But it's not each other. And so, fleeing infighting. A third thing that destroys courage is fearing. The last thing he says in this phrase here, he says, look, I want these things for you, whether I'm here or not. I want you to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. When I hear about you, I want to hear that you're not quaking in fear. Fear makes you uncertain. Fear is dangerous on the battlefield. Fear makes you fall back when you need to fall into the gap. And so each of these pictures are pictures of combat or, or um, struggle of some kind. And the enemy, he says, is looking for these openings, these weaknesses. Will they get an opening? Who are these enemies that... Paul is talking about. Who is he saying wants to do this to us? Well, later in the book, he's going to talk about the enemies of God and he's going to say that they have three descriptions. He says in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. So there's a contrast drawn between the allegiance that we have to heaven and those whose God is their belly, glory is their shame, and their minds are set on the things of earth. And In short, the enemies of God are those who don't have an allegiance to him first. Rather, they have an allegiance to their own passions, their own version of glory, their own allegiance is short-sighted. It's on the things of earth rather than the things of God how can I win? How can I have the most? How can I enjoy the most? How can I gain the most power? How can I have the most experiences? If your mind is set on those things, then you've set your things on the things of Earth, your mind on the things of earth rather than the allegiance to heaven. Why does he not want them to be afraid? Well, because the victory is won, and the writing is on the wall for the enemies. He says it very explicitly here. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The lines are drawn, in other words. This is a clear sign. The the things that are weighed in the balance are destruction and salvation. And so he's saying... You look at the ultimate stakes, there can be a feeling, there can be an outright statement in our culture that the truth is what you imagine it to be, but we don't do anyone any favors by pretending that the truth is what you want it to be. But rather by courage, we draw lines in the sand, and it shows as a clear sign, he says here, it's a sad line, but it's a clear line. This is the truth, and this is where we stand. In other words, our calling is not to shape the truth. It's not to make the truth. Our calling is to stand firm in the truth. And it takes courage. That's what destroys courage. What gives courage? What gives us courage? Well, the thing that gives us the courage is God's grace. At the end of verse 28, he says this, it's a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And that from God. The salvation is not because you have stood firm. The salvation is because it's from God. He saves. Look at verse 29, for it has been granted to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you. The word there is just grace. Charis. It's grace. You have been graced, he says, with two things. The first one we're familiar with, we're used to. It's belief. You're graced with belief. Not only to believe in Him. Grace is a gift of God. Belief in God is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace we have been saved through faith, and that's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. The gift that God gives us is belief in Him. This is where you get the courage. It's by God Himself granting you salvation in His name. And so if anyone feels they are outside of the promises of God, you need only believe in Him, trust in Him, and you will have the salvation that He talks about here. You will then have a life worthy of the gospel because God Himself has given you His grace. So we have grace by, we have the gift of belief, but we're not so used to the second gift. (laughs) Not only to believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. The suffering that God gives us is also His grace to us. And if you have belief in Christ, in other words, you also have suffering for Christ. The two go together. There will be conflict. There will be suffering It will happen that if you bear the name of Christ, if you have an allegiance to him, if you make your life worthy, in other words, if you have that allegiance to him, it will happen that you will also suffer with him. Because your citizenship is in heaven where he is. And your life is now his life. And his life was a suffering life. But know that God is the one who gives the courage. He gives the courage. If you have Christ, you have the courage. God has granted it to you. Now you may need to find it. You may, need to, you may feel that you've lost it. You may need to cultivate it. But you have Christ. You have courage because He faced the cross for our sake. So courage comes from God's grace. It also comes from mutual support. He says, engaged in the same conflict, verse 30, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says, I'm with you. I'm with you in this conflict. And he knows that they have been with him in his conflict. That's why he says in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. I'm depending on God, but I'm also depending on your prayers. He's been in conflict, and they've helped him. Now they're going into conflict, and he is going to do his best to support them. We are not alone. We have been set apart with one mind and one spirit to strive together to have this courage. So courage comes by the grace of God and the support of the people of God. We use each other. We need each other, but most of all, we need the grace of God. What does it mean for us to stand firm? For us here in this room, in this cultural moment, what requires the kind of courage, the kind of commitment or allegiance to the truth that Paul says we will necessarily be engaged in. There's so much that we can say. I mean, there's so much conflict. We don't really need to do anything to go looking for it. it It comes to us. But it seems to me that two of the biggest battlegrounds, and I'll close with this for us, two of the the places where we really need the most courage right now, is in a couple of areas that have seemed to take over our public discourse and our life together. The first one is this, the body politic, <laughs> politics. And what Paul, to take Paul to his conclusion here would, would be for us to say that our allegiance is not to an ideology. It's not to a political party. It's not to a person. It's not to a leader. It's not to a think tank. It's not to a news agency, a magazine, whatever it is where we get our support for our beliefs and knowledge about what's going on. The Christian allegiance doesn't fit snugly onto the categories that we're used to talking about in our system. We're so good pushing things to opposite tensions, left and right, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, elites versus masses. There's so much pressure to push to the sides, and I'm not saying I know it gets annoying when Christians do this kind of both sides-ism right? We're saying, there's some truth over here. There's some truth over there. I know that gets annoying. And I know also that it gets annoying when you say, well, truth it must be in the middle. We can all just love each other. That doesn't work either. We're talking about things that can't be reconciled sometimes. So I'm not even talking about the issues themselves. What I'm saying is the challenge that we receive from this passage is where is my first allegiance? What happens when things don't fit exactly on what I have experienced? What happens when the group known for liberation of the the needy, for instance, a scriptural principle, the care of the poor, also desires to destroy the most needy? The unborn child, who the Scriptures tell us is fearfully and wonderfully made from the moment they've been in the womb. What happens when the the group most known for conserving demonstrates greed and destruction, massive spending, destruction of God's good earth? Christians have a group identity it's just not any of those identities our allegiance that we are to be worthy of is the allegiance to the gospel of Christ we have a citizenship in heaven so happy 4th of july <laughs> sorry i love the 4th of july i am proud to be an american you got to remember paul is writing this from rome he's in prison He's talking to a group that's under the rule of Rome. Christianity is not equivalent with some kind of seeking of, of, of rights or privileges that, that, are, um, that are wonderful and to be embraced and enjoyed where we have them now. We have more in common, in other words, with the Christian who was worshiping this morning in a refugee camp in Syria, or the Christian who's in Moscow right now, or is in North Korea, or in Beijing, and there's an underground church. They See, Christianity exists in all of those places. It's not tied to freedoms and privileges. It is tied to something else, a citizenship in heaven. An allegiance first to that. We have more in common with those people than we do with the non-Christian who writes really good political commentary that we agree with and that we follow on Twitter. We have more in common with them. There is a first allegiance. The second battleground is where in many cases the most courage is needed. It's the, the human body. And what we say from the Scriptures is this, the human body. Now each of these could be their own sermon. Each of them must be approached with compassion and love and care. But the human body does have a particular form. It has a function. It has a beginning. It has an end. A goal. It has a beginning in conception. As the Scriptures tell us, it has a form in gender, sex, male and female, He created them, Genesis 2. It has a blessed union in marriage that God gives to the man and the woman. It has an end, the glory of God. And these are things that are up for grabs. And I'm not saying that we should be known for fighting against those. I don't think anybody that's come here for for any length of time would say, this is a place where we just rail on people. No, we're to be known by love. We're to be known by our compassion, by our care. The scriptures are clear about that, but they're also clear that we are to stand firm and not assume that what we believe will have no conflict and no suffering with those who have set their minds on the things below. We aren't to make God into our image, we're not to cast beads. However, we may be tempted to do that, to vote on what God says or who he is. In fact, we are to joyfully come into the new new polis, the new politic, the kingdom of heaven, a new allegiance, and our lives are to be worthy of that through courage. And so we ask ourselves, and this really does go to everyone, not just those who like those cultural issues that we just railed against, but everyone to look at the scriptures and say, how is it that I am being called to stand firm, to demonstrate the courage worthy of the gospel? I know that the only reason that I'm able to do so is because Christ has granted to me that belief and that ability to suffer for his name. Let's pray.